Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The two main words of Scripture are law and gospel. The law, simply speaking, is a command from God, a demand from God. It's what we are to do, what we're not to do. Uh, The epitome of the formula of Concord puts it this way. We believe, teach, and confess that the law is properly a divine doctrine. It teaches what is right and pleasing to God, and it rebukes everything that is sin and contrary to God's will. The law of God is good, but it cannot save. The law cannot save you because, well... You haven't fully kept God's law. And even if from this point forward, you're like, all right, from here on out, I will never sin again. Even if you could accomplish that, how many times have you already sinned up till this point in your life? I mean, it's just innumerable. You wouldn't even be able to keep track of it, right? So the law of God can't save you. You can't be saved by keeping it. The primary function of the law of God is to diagnose us, to show us our sins. It reveals our sickness. It's like the doctor pointing out what's wrong with you. The law gives the diagnosis, but it doesn't give the cure. The gospel, on the other hand, is the cure. Gospel is always something God does, not something we do. Gospel is good news. It's a gift. It's what God does for us because of his great love, not because of anything we've earned. The epitome of the formula of Concord explains the gospel in this way. But the gospel is properly the kind of teaching that shows what a person who has not kept the law and therefore is condemned by it is to believe. It teaches that Christ has paid for and made satisfaction for all sins. Christ has gained and acquired for an individual without any of his own merit Forgiveness of sins, righteousness that avails before God, and eternal life. Now last week, in Luke chapter 14, we had a heavy law text. Gospel was hard to come by. It was about counting the cost. Jesus said things like, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now as you turn from 14 to 15, now all of a sudden we have just gospel-saturated readings here. In Luke 15, we get some of the most beloved parables of Jesus. We have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the one that follows those that's not in our reading for today, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the prodigal son kind of gets skipped at this point in the lectionary because we already had it in Lent as one of the gospel readings. But you guys know it, right? (laughs) You've heard it a time or two. These parables of Jesus are beautiful, wonderful teachings of how God searches for that which is lost, rejoices when finding it, and then receives back what was lost and invites everybody else to rejoice in that as well. So let's start with the the lost sheep. You know the story. You know how this one goes, right? Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. The shepherd leaves the 99 in the care of another shepherd, goes in search of the lost sheep, and when he finds it, he doesn't, he doesn't reach out and smack that sheep for being so dumb and running away in the first place. He gently picks it up, doesn't even make the sheep walk its way back, but gently puts it on his shoulders and he carries it all the way back. And then he gets his friends and neighbors and calls them together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, in the next parable, Jesus tells of the lost coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the, sh- the coin that I had lost. Some commentators have proposed the idea that the coins in this parable are representative of the, the dowry payment that was paid for her to be given as a bride. So these would represent more than just the value of the coins themselves, but there would be a, an emotional attachment to them on top of that. Regardless, though, when one of the coins is lost, what does the woman do? She tears apart the house, looking desperately to find it. She lights a lamp. That costs money. And she looks and she looks, and when she finds it, then what does she do? She, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, and her relatives, and she throws a big party. Now, finally, you get the the parable of the prodigal son. And you know how that goes. The younger son wants his inheritance right then and right there. When he gets it, he takes off, and he wastes it. He's living immorally. He is wasting the inheritance that he has been given, and he ends up penniless in a foreign land. And finally, he, in his desperate condition, resolves to go back home, to ask his father to take him back, not as a son, but as a servant. But the father, when he sees his son a long way off, goes running out to him, wraps his arms around him, puts a robe and a ring on him, and he throws a big party. But of course, you remember the older brother wasn't very happy about this, was he? He's angry, in fact. He, he knows how wasteful his brother has been. He knows how immoral his brother has been. And he doesn't think there should be any celebration at the return of this prodigal son. This wasteful brother. Now that brings us back to the beginning of the sermon and the two words of scripture, law and gospel. Jesus tells these parables to who? The Pharisees and the scribes who are gathered around and are acting much like that older brother. Chapter 15 begins like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. (laughs) Now, 
In light of that, what do you think? Does Jesus tell these parables as law or gospel? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the gospel is just dripping from these things. It's about God's willingness to search for and to bring back that which is lost. The stories illustrate just what Jesus came to do, to seek and to save the lost. It's good news for the lost. It's good news for tax collectors and sinners, for those who need repentance and know it. Oh, but there's law here too, isn't there? The Pharisees and the scribes, they don't think they have any need to repent. They're already pretty confident of their goodness. So Jesus tells a series of parables that draws them in. He tells the first one, the parable of the lost sheep, and they can kind of they can kind of go with him on this one, right? They're like, okay, yeah, I got it. I can, I can understand why you would uh, go searching for that one sheep and, and be excited upon finding it. Uh, that, that seems to make sense. It might be a little over the top to have a big party when you bring it back, I guess, but they can kind of track with that one a little bit. And the next parable, though, with the lost coin, you can kind of sense that they would be like, well... This seems a little bit over the top, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's this one coin. You probably spent more on the party than the coin was worth. What are you doing here? This doesn't really seem to make any sense. What's this big celebration about this one coin? It seems excessive to us. And finally, you get to the parable of the prodigal son with the, the character of the older son. Jesus shows the Pharisees and the scribes just how they're acting. They're refusing to celebrate with those who have returned in repentance. They're sticking their noses in the air and they're acting like they're better than others. And so what does Jesus do? He shows them their sin. Yes, indeed, there is law and gospel in these parables. Law for the proud and gospel for broken sinners who know their need for God's grace. But Jesus speaks the law to these Pharisees and these scribes, not simply so that we can point at their sin and say, see, everybody's a sinner. Well, that's true, but the reason the law is used isn't so that we can just all say, well, yeah, everybody's a sinner but so that they recognize their sin and they can join the gospel party. Jesus actually wants these guys to hear the law, to recognize their own sin, so they can stop being judgmental and self-righteous, and they can actually join the party that Jesus is throwing here. He came to seek and to save the lost, the tax collectors, the notorious sinners, the scribes and the Pharisees too. He wants them to see their own sin so they can stop thinking that they don't need his forgiveness and they can be in on the party that he's throwing. He wants them to, he wants to show their, that their self-righteousness is a fairy tale so they can just join in the celebration with all of the other sinners. And really, that's what the church ought to be, isn't it? 
It's where notorious sinners gather together and Jesus throws a big party because he found us and he brought us back to God. Jesus welcomes us to the party. He forgives us our sins. He gives us new clean garments, which are his righteousness. And then he he feeds us with his body and blood. And then he sends us out to let other sinners know that they too are invited to the party. They're invited to leave their sinful ways behind and to join the celebration of forgiven sinners that we call the church. C.S. Lewis captures this idea in one of his poems. Now, C.S. Lewis was a wonderful writer. His poems are, in, in general, they're pretty awful, actually. They're not very good. Uh, that's, that's my assessment, but it's the assessment of some others as well. He really wanted to be a poet, <laughs> His prose is so much better. <laughs> but in this, this, uh, this poem, the main character has been judgmental towards others. He has thought himself better than others. And his attitude has actually kept him from the wonderful master, while others, like the tax collectors and sinners in Luke 15, walk right into the master's presence and join the celebration. So finally, at the end of the poem, Lewis writes this. I stood in the chill of the great morning, aghast. Then at last, oh, I was late in learning. I repented. I entered into the, the excellent joke, the absurdity. My burden rolled off as I broke into laughter, and soon after, I had found my own level with Balaam's ass daily out of the grass I revel, out at grass I revel, now playing, now braying over the meadows of light, our soaring, creaking Gloria, our donkey's delight. In other words, the guy gets it. He's a dumb donkey saved by grace. Lewis puts this out as being in on the joke. And that's actually kind of what Jesus is doing with these parables too, isn't it? The joke is, we think we're better than everybody else and we think that we can somehow earn being in God's presence because of our righteousness. And only when we realize how stupidly sinful we are, how we're the dumb donkeys, then we find the joy of grace. Then we revel in the forgiveness of sins. Then we're glad to come to the party that God holds every Sunday morning and confess our sins and receive his grace. See, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's us. And when we recognize what he's done for us, you can't help but rejoice. And when we see the same grace given to other sinners rather than being like the Pharisees, we get to join in rejoicing, join in the celebration. Jesus invites us to laugh at ourselves and our so-called self-righteousness and to give it all up in celebrating the forgiveness of sins in him. Jesus invites us, rejoice with me. And so we shall, as dumb donkeys saved by grace, but dearly loved by the Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the peace that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.